Good evening, Team Kulak community, and Happy New Year to everybody. This is our first episode of Down the Rabbit Hole of the Russia-Ukraine War here in 2023. And as uh, always, we're pleased to welcome back Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia subject matter expert. And uh, as we were just talking about before we started recording, realized that somewhat optimistically, uh, we had set the recurring um, event, calendar event for this series to December 31st, 2022. I think we thought maybe we hoped that we would not have to do anything into the new year, but obviously that's not the case. So we are here in 2023 and, you know, keeping our fingers crossed that we will not be revisiting this in January of 2024. But uh, there's uh, there's a lot of time between today and then. And obviously a lot of a lot of potentially things that could shift on the battlefield in even in the just the next couple months, which is one of the things we'll talk about today. So you've all. Good evening. Happy New Year. Good to see you again. Welcome back. And uh, we will let's just get right to it. And uh, since we were having some some network issues before, we got to hope that it lasts through this whole one. As we were, we were sort of running through the list of things that have, have occurred since our last discussion here. And uh, I think the, the biggest thing was just a few days after we recorded the last down the rabbit hole was a pair of out of country visits by um, the Ukrainian leadership and Russian leadership. We had uh, Putin went to go visit his friend Lukashenko in Minsk, not for the first time, but uh, it was sort of the timing was interesting because it was also right about the same time that uh, President Zelensky, his first out of country visit since the war started, and that was over to the United States where he met with President Biden privately, did a press conference, and then he, he in person for the first time addressed a joint session of Congress. And obviously he's, he's had previous addresses virtually, you know, via Zoom to Congress. But um, first time, again, this time in person, and also, again, his first out-of-country visit. And so maybe um, we can go through the sort of the, the competing messages that came out between those two visits, and maybe also explore a little bit what the sort of message was that in President Zelensky's first, you know, external visit, Washington, D.C. is a lot farther away than some of his European neighbors, uh, as well as, you know, European neighbors, as well as some of the other contributors to the, you know, both the military and financial support to the country. But he went to D.C. first. So, um, Yuval, if you want to sort of maybe take us through the, the main messages, maybe some of the, the implications of each of those visits. Sure thing. And uh, happy new year to you uh, as well. Uh, so, yeah, so we also um, Zelensky to, to D.C., Putin to Minsk, uh, and we'll get to it also in a moment. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, one-time president of Russia, uh, also went to uh, Beijing. You know, the the big message that Zelensky was able to deliver is, one, he left his own country to go to the place that is spearheading the efforts to save his country from complete and utter destruction. And in that regard, you go basically to uh, the friendliest faces that you can find. And in the Congress, the Congress is per perhaps the most polarized it's been since, I don't know, the 1830s or 40s or something, um, or, you know, the pre-Civil War era. But except for uh, basically a couple exceptions, um, most of Congress was was pretty well united um, in terms of welcoming uh, Zelensky to Washington. And it also makes a difference that Zelensky was able to, you know, put forth his message, which is we're doing the fighting for the defense of democracy, for the defense of Europe, for the defense of liberal values and of civilization. Uh, so we need all the help that we can get. That was the core message that he came to Washington to deliver. And 
in that it also makes a difference that he can speak English. Um, and as a you know professional entertainer before he was in politics, was able to put in a bit of humor, was able to sort of capture the pathos of the situation, and was able to make what is effectively a sales pitch for the continued support of Ukraine. So in all regards, the visit went well. Um, no, no gaffes, uh, you know, from from anyone. And to an extent, it seems that for obviously we don't know what happens when the the control of Congress changes hands in I guess uh, I guess two weeks or so or something like that. Um, but at the minimum, there seems to be a bipartisan, uh, even far more than a that is so of support to Ukraine. And in the Senate, there's there's also pretty pretty good bipartisan support for Ukraine. So, you know, that was basically like the, you know, the objective of the trip and the objective seems to have worked. Um, we also know that uh, in terms of the, the support to Ukraine, one of the things that we haven't seen, um, well, we can get to that in just a minute. We also note, as you noted, uh, President Putin went to uh, Minsk during that time uh, and he sent his uh, former prime minister, and one time, uh, you know, keeper of the seat warm while he uh, was term limited, uh, Dmitry Medvedev to uh, Beijing. And I think that if Zelensky had gone to Washington and Putin had gone to Beijing, you know, basically in the same time period, it would have been a lot more humiliating for Putin because Putin, you know, considers himself to be on par uh, with, uh, with China, with Xi Jinping. And if he had then, you know, insulted as he did, uh, you know, Zelensky for going to his main patron, for him to turn around and do the same uh, would have not been a great look. So they sent Medvedev to, to Beijing, uh, who got his photo opportunity, um, was able to leave the country, which Medvedev looked super pleased about uh, for that time. But Putin himself went to Minsk. And in Minsk, he, as he's done throughout this entire conflict, uh, pressed his uh, ally slash subordinate, Alexander Lukashenko, to do more and to do something. Now, the Belarusians have, uh, you know, allowed Russians to train on their territory, uh, and there are Russian troops on the territory of Belarus, and they've, uh, you know, amended their uh, nuclear weapons law to permit the stationing of nuclear, you know, foreign nuclear weapons, i.e. Russian nuclear weapons, on their territory. But so far, Lukashenko, who's been in power since, you know, the mid-1990s, uh, is a political survivor above all else has not yet joined the actual fighting in Ukraine. The Russians are able to do far less. Um, and it's quite clear that over the last number of years, where the bulk of the money within the Belarusian state has gone to has not been the military, you know, designed for use in, in foreign conflicts, but on internal security services. And anything bad that would happen to Belarusian forces in the field, uh, that would just essentially create problems that may not be manageable without the th the plausible threat of basically Russian intervention to support him as what happened uh, the last time, which I think was in the Halcyon days of 2019, I believe. Yeah, I, 2019, I think that's correct. Yeah. So if he doesn't have that sort of support now, he's going to be less and less likely to um, to join the fighting. And so that's basically what took us to uh, to the new year. And of course, the Russians then um, ring in the new year in Ukraine with further uh, missile attacks on on Russian city on uh, Ukrainian cities. Sorry, um, the news to report, however, over the last uh, maybe twenty four to forty eight hours, 
is that uh, yesterday the Ukrainians were able to, or the claimed, and were able to show that they um, were able to shoot down all 39 drones uh, launched from Russia into Ukraine. So it shows that, you know, the, you know, through the, the misfortune of experience, they are improving their air defense. And we also have a, a major attack. We don't yet know the casualty figures, but the Russian uh, government immediately acknowledged 63 casualties. So it's certainly some multiple of that. Um, and that was in the town of Makivka um, in Donetsk Oblast or Donetsk region. Um, and this was where ostensibly uh, several hundred uh, mobilized soldiers who seem to all be from the town of Saratov, which is otherwise, it, it, just interesting on a personal note, it is the sister city to uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, so I happen to have already uh, known where it is uh, beforehand. Um, but they took over basically a technical university there uh, in Makievka, uh, put these guys there, several hundred. And given that it's a relatively small town, um, and not all everyone who is you know in DNR, for example, is pro-Russian. Uh, there have been many reports of artillery spotters. Uh, people helping with the reconnaissance of the area. Uh, but in addition, it was likely that local sources were able to alert the Ukrainian side that there was a lot of activity in that town. It was going to the technical college. Um, the Ukrainians were uh, allegedly also able to note the higher density of cell phone usage in that area uh, of calls going back to Russia. And so in combination, it also appears that the Russians were storing ammunition and vehicles uh, in the same spot as where their uh, soldiers were sleeping. So um, the HIMARS came in, destroyed everything, and it appears, you know, there are quite a few casualties. And that's basically, you know, what we've uh, what we've had over the last couple of days. Um, you know, in recent episodes, we talked about, you know, the winter fighting season that, you know, everything will be wet for a while, but once the weather starts to freeze, um, then the ground will obviously get harder and uh, the Ukrainians should be able to then essentially move a bit faster given um, given that the vehicles they have at their disposal. There has been, in a sense, bad for like, let's say the Ukrainian offensives, but also uh, good in terms of hurting Russian export potential is that there's been a massive heat wave, uh, relatively speaking, across Europe. And the amount of one natural gas usage has been weighed down, but it also means that nothing in Europe more or less has frozen. So we're still in, you know, thinking about the weather, we're still basically in autumn, even in the first week of January. That said, the uh, the forecast looks to uh, to start to dip, uh, perhaps sometime in the next uh, seven to ten days, and that's that's really what, where we are. Let's say last. 10 days and looking ahead to the next 10. Yeah. And if there's a couple of things, if, if I, if I could, I wanted to throw in on some of that stuff is, um, you know, I, <clears throat> there, there were a number of uh, going back to president Zelensky's visit to Congress, you know, there were a number of sort of notable moments. And like you said, his sort of long experience as a public persona, I think really came through in, in his speaking style, as well as some of the, you know, both, both the humor he tried to inject as well as calling on, you know, America's own historical experience. Um, I recall that in sort of the, the preview notes to the speech, it was said that he was going to call parallels between, you know, the American forces at Bastogne that were encircled and surrounded during the winter 1944 
as sort of akin to, you know, Ukraine's situation, you know, where at that point sort of just sheer tenacity got the, uh, the Americans through at Bastogne until they could be relieved. But then he also threw in what I thought was kind of a deep cut of the Battle of Saratoga in the American Revolution. And when he said that, I'm like, wow, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have to look that one up um, because it's uh, not something that's necessarily in your, you know, your sort of immediate historical consciousness. But, you know, it was a, a battle that was a turning point in the fortunes of the American forces, you know, during the American Revolution. And so it's pretty clear that he was calling out some parallels between like this, this is their war of independence. They've seen themselves as a independent, distinct nation for a long time, but th this is the military conflict that's really going to define them. So, you know, that, that was an interesting point for him to throw in. And I also wanted to, to make a note, like at, at the very end, I think we sort of knew this was coming because another interesting parallel between, you know, Putin's visit outside the country and Zelensky's was that I think about 48 hours prior Zelensky had been on the front lines in the town of Bakhmut, which we had talked about as a as a current um, pretty pretty point of very intense fighting in the last episode, and has continued to be a point of intense fighting with um, really no significant gains or changes on the ground. But as we discussed in the last episode, that's that seems to be a a point that Putin has chosen as something he wants. You know, regardless of whether it has any military value or not in, in comparison to its location, but he wants it, you know, to prove that, he, that his forces can take something. And, uh, you know, but Zelensky visited that that scene of very intense fighting. You know, one, his personal presence there is in stark contrast to Putin, who has not ventured any closer to the sound of the guns than he has to. Um, I think the closest he came was driving across the bridge, the, the Kirk Bridge that had been blown up just to prove that it was, you know, fixed again. But, you know, President Zelensky had gotten Ukrainian soldiers to sign that flag, which he then presented 48 hours later, you know, to Congress as a, you know, sort of a token of friendship. And I just, when he did that, I want to, it's, it's not something that necessarily an audience outside the United States would maybe make more of than, yeah, this is a very sort of personal gift. But when, when he did that, I sort of, my, you know, JLo's personal opinion here, I don't know if those outside the United States fully appreciate the power, sort of the symbolic power of a flag that we know has been on the front lines um, in the same way an American audience does who've, who've you know, been through the last 20 something years of the global war on terror, which, oh, by the way, that officially ended on uh, on the last day of December as well. So so I guess that's done with, you know, that people fly or taking flags out, you know, sort of outside the wires, we would say, and uh, and putting them in their combat vehicles or I know on, on my deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, we would constantly take folded up U.S. flags with us out on our missions. We didn't hang them. You know, it wasn't flown to interfere with the workings of the aircraft, but it was in the aircraft as we were out flying those missions and we brought them back. And then they would get sent back to, you know, friends and families back at home. They'd be sent to organizations that sponsored care packages and other support of the troops is just sort of. It, a very tangible, you know, I like you could say that this this was there, like the place that your support was going. This flag was out there, you know, in our front lines, as you as it were, and being sent back. So I just I, I just wanted to dwell on that a little bit because I outside of an American audience, I there's a deeper resonance there um, in, a, in a flag coming right from the front lines that I suspect a an American audience immersed in the war on terror for two decades. Um, it was impactful in a way that may not be apparent to other audiences.
At least that was sort of, that was my, my sense when I saw him do that. Yeah, no, you know, it's the flags, not merely, you know, uh, mementos that they sort of, that, that they carry sort of the deeper symbolic meaning and particularly for people in Congress who are fairly intimately like aware of what exactly was global war on terror support for the military, all of these issues at that time, I do not know how many people in the audience would have been able to speak at length about the battle of Saratoga, but sort of like the, the general point was made clear. And in one of the things we've seen about Zelensky in terms of creating soft power and essentially creating different, creating different messages and messaging environments is the guy goes to places just in one and two, as you put it, he goes to places which are close to the front lines or have been recently liberated, knowing that in essence, the, uh, the physical appearance of the leader can raise morale. And of course, there's been lots of discussion in social media about how when, you know, Zelensky does go to places that people report, you know, their, their fathers, husbands, brothers, et cetera, on the front lines, that those soldiers do get that morale boost when they know the president has just come or the president's about to come, it makes them fight harder because they know that someone at the very top cares about them. And that is contrasting with, uh, with, with Putin, who basically doesn't go to anywhere where there's even a hint of danger. And that, that core difference sort of indicates, you know, Putin is willing to basically have as many casualties as is necessary in order to secure more land for Russia and therefore his legacy. Whereas Zelensky is hoping to bring the war to an end, but, and in terms of trying to save as much human life as he can. And that's, that's been quite different. And we saw, you know, particularly after, you know, the Ukrainians were able to retake Kherson, is that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, had not visited the Russian city of Kherson. And within what, 24, 48 hours of Kherson, going back to the Ukrainian control, Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky visited the Ukrainian city of Kherson. And that's the sort of thing of what, you know, the eyewitness reports and, you know, the captured communications from the front lines of the, the Russian soldiers show that they know that their leadership, you know, from the officers all the way to the president simply do not care about them. They don't care about human life in general, and they certainly don't care about uh, the lives of the Russian soldiers. And that's something that, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the, the Russian decisions, like where and when to mobilize, like their soldiers is that, you know, we, we can talk about this in just a moment, but it doesn't seem other than just putting as many warm bodies as possible on the front lines to basically reduce the Ukrainian advances just by sheer mass and little else beyond that. And that's essentially like a, a core difference that we've seen basically from the beginning of the conflict and as we're basically rounding into or rounding towards the, the first anniversary of it is something that is making a difference in the, the war fighting capabilities of both sides. Yeah. And uh, not to, to, you know, dwell too much longer on the sort of the, the difference of personal example, but I think I don't know want to oversimplify it, but I, I, I do think the, you know, the, the in-person visits to, you know, the, the front lines or recently liberated places, it's indicative, among other things, of, as you said, sort of just the different different value systems at play. Because, uh, you know, aside from the, you know, the morale boost or the, 
putting a poking a thumb in the eye of Putin for you know not going near these places that he says are his. It's simply the like the expectation of or it's what you expect your leaders to do, right? Like demonstrating a certain minimal level of concern and commitment to show that to show that you do have that that level of of concern and and acknowledging what your troops are doing, you know. And again, I, I don't want to make too many parallels, but it harkens back to you know, again, to the global war on terror eras where, you know, you would have these, these, you know, very highly secure, you know, very hush-hush, deeply, you know, detailed arranged visits by Presidents Bush or President Obama to visit troops in Iraq or Afghanistan. And now I'm not, I'm not discounting, you know, their, their, their level of sort of willingness to take on personal risk because there's no, nobody is expecting the president of the United States to like jump into the trench on the, the very front lines or, you know, like go on patrol in downtown Fallujah. Right. There are too many other national security concerns among other things to put the president in that situation. But the point was they went to those countries where they had committed troops, right. Where they're the citizens that they had ordered to risk their, you know, their lives and personal security for national security objectives they went to go visit them in those countries to show that they they acknowledge that the, the sacrifice their troops are doing. And, you know, even in very arranged circumstances, you know, the point is they still went to those countries. Right. And that is not a risk free proposition, no matter how much security and secrecy you're wrapped around it. You know, they still went. They went to Iraq and Afghanistan, which were not safe countries to be in, you know, on the best of days. Putin just doesn't because he is. He, he doesn't care about those signals. He doesn't care about that message. You know, that's, and at the end of the day, that's, as, as you put it, you don't expect, you know, the, the president of, you know, any country to like pick up a gun and, you know, join the fighting, but you do expect that person to take responsibility and taking responsibility is made manifest when those leaders go to those places and say, I have these national security objectives for the defense of our, our country. I'm saying you to do something. I am here in order to like look at you eye to eye, face to face, and take responsibility for that decision. And that, you know, I've been studying Russia one way or another for the past 17 years. And one of the things that is sort of a through line, you know, in terms of like studying Putin is that this is a person who doesn't take responsibility. He only makes the decision once basically like they've gone through, what are the things that haven't worked? But in terms of saying, I stand behind this, even in, you know, we'll talk in a second about his recent speech, uh, you know, to the uh, defense industry board in Russia, um, his messaging over the past 10 months has been, everything is going according to plan, the only thing that we didn't account for was the extreme deviousness of NATO. We'd only budgeted for deviousness, but nothing of this extreme variety. That is basically a message that's very clear. Um, I'm going to blame everybody else but myself. Uh, and in fact, at several points in the last speech, he says, nothing is our fault. Nothing is due to our policy. This was all forced on us. And you're thinking like, actually started like this particular phase of the fighting. February 24th, uh, you know, the fighting began. February 23rd, you gave a speech in which you said, we're going to take territories of the neighbors. And in the days before, you had your entire, like, political security, mil and not really the military leadership, or at least the civilian military leadership, 
in a room where you embarrass them one by one to join your conflict. And it's that not recognizing that responsibility matters, like leadership matters. It's always somebody else's fault. That sort of trickles on down all the way to the front lines. Yeah. And there, there's probably some some more concerning implications for that in, in the long term as he gets you know, as the uh, the reality of the situation sort of keeps tumbling on him when he there's nobody left to blame essentially for reverses. Uh, so you know that, that'll be something to watch here. You know, down in the coming weeks and months as well. I do want to, I, a couple more things, and then I'll we'll get back to our sort of our regularly scheduled program here. But to to the high marsh strike today, just some of the things you were you were mentioning as well as um, I, like I said, I woke up and uh, our former Swedish visiting fellow was the one who who sent it to me. And there are some some interesting implications of it, which in, sort of in no particular order, um, but kind of tie back to uh, a little bit of our talk of the learning or lack of learning across the Russian military. And, and I was I, I think it's a, probably, again, an oversimplification to say that there is zero learning going on across the Russian military, um, because for those troops who've been in contact on the front lines, you know, especially around very intense fighting you don't survive to the next day without sort of a basic level of learning and adaptation. So, um, but I think it probably is closer to the truth to say that the learning is very, it's shared very unevenly across the forces. And I think this particular strike is, is an indication that that, that group of, uh, of, of regional volunteers slash conscripts, they had not been passed any of the sort of the useful survival knowledge that um, units who've been fighting against the Ukrainians for you know months at this point have probably figured out just as a matter of self survival. And you know some of the things you mentioned. One, um, the density of of electromagnetic signals, you know, personal cell phones indicating a large concentration of troops. Uh, the, the troops along the who've been who are still alive along the front lines against the Ukrainians probably figured out that that's that's something you don't do if you want to live to the next day. Um, is is either cluster those signals or use open communications like that, you know, it, unless absolutely necessary. Two, the building them right next to an ammunition store, it, it violates so many basic rules of sort of rudimentary military planning and organization. I, don't, I kind of even don't know where to start on that one because that's stuff that, you know, the Russians hadn't figured it out from all the ammo dumps that have been blown up by the Ukrainians up to this point, like every ammunition storage point, you know, you don't put them next to the barracks, right? You just don't because that's incredibly stupid. But I think it's, it's indicated that that message hadn't made it to this new group of troops, which indicates that whatever training preparation these volunteers or, or conscripts are getting, there's no continuity of knowledge to patch sort of those there's no linkage to the more experienced grizzled grognards at this point to pass that information down, right? Because your grizzled grognards are one, they're probably much closer to the front line, holding the line with the, the knowledge and experience they won to survive at this point. And two, you killed a lot of those guys in the initial wave of the invasion because they were squandered in piecemeal advances and attacks that were not properly coordinated or used combined arms to support. So that institute, the basic institutional knowledge was killed in the initial wave because they were, you know, they were just thrown in, assuming Kiev would fall in three days. Um, so I, I think it's it's interesting. It's it's kind of telling at this point in the war, almost a year into it, that the basics of you don't billet your troops next to ammunition has still not like funneled down 
you know, to the new wave of people that are bringing in there. And then last point, and this is sort of not really related to the rest, but well, I, I didn't know that they were all from the same town until you mentioned that right before we started recording. And uh, it kind of made me the first thing in my mind was like, this reminds me of like the PALS battalions from World War One, right? Where you, you enlist with all your buddies because it's, you know, you get to go to war with your friends and that potentially does buy you a, a higher initial unit cohesion because you know the people who are in your unit. Um, so that sort of overcomes one of the initial hurdles of throwing brand, pulling brand new people off the streets, giving them weapons and basic training, sending them to the front. At least they sort of know they know each other. That's not an insignificant thing. But as you mentioned that, you know, I'm like, I'm, you know, doing the math here, you know, say, say the Russians are being relatively honest and we're talking, you know, high double digits for the killed and let's do sort of times three wounded as sort of the normal calculus that does make this one strike have casualty levels in the hundreds. And um, I'm, I'm not, you know, extending any extra sympathy to, you know, you know, people who've invaded their neighbors, but for that one town in Russia, that's going to be a really bad day. Like when, when all that news comes back that they've lost potentially hundreds of their sons, brothers, towns, and they all know each other. These are not strangers. This, they're going to know probably every name that's on that list when it comes back. And it, it sort of makes you wonder, this is not the only sort of re group of regional volunteers that have gone together. How many other times, how many times outside of a very high profile mass casualty strike has this happened for these regional volunteer units? And are we, as you, we've sort of mentioned much earlier in, in the series, you know, Russia's going from a, a 21st century military to a 20th century military back to a 19th, like this whole PALS battalion thing was like very early World War One, early 20th century. The aftershocks of that were were pretty gut wrenching to the society because it wasn't just the British, right? Like I've 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 done I've done a little bit of touring and visiting in the French countryside, and every little French town has a list of names from World War One, a long list of people who didn't come back. So the the loss of those people to that one community is going to be you know it's going to be gut wrenching, and so it just. If, if this is sort of their approach to to organization and getting troops to the front line, just this this is this is sort of a, again Putin's attempting to win the next two weeks or the next news cycle and not really caring about the longer term implications. You're going to have all of these little Russian communities who are going to have sort of the the prime of their youth, you know, lost in in these types of things because of how they've organized their military for short term gain. Um, there's going to be some long, many longer term after effects. The loss of a few hundred people in a palace battalion is going to be one of them. It's, it's going to resonate long after the war is over. Yeah, just like the last thought that came up is it's probably that all, if these guys all knew each other because they're from the same town, it's probably they were all drafted by the same, like basically whatever precinct level of like the local military commissariat. And so it could could quite literally be people who were conscripted together, basically organized together train together and then move closer to the front lines together so there could so it's it's quite possible that these people really do know each other if not like you know every person knows every other person but it could be the same neighborhood and, and again and again not not to dwell on it but it's you know world war one was not the first time right like in, in the american civil war you had towns and states raising their own volunteer units and the whole point was you went and you fought together but all it would take is one bad miscalculation of a commander to put all those troops in the same place into a really, you know, into some bad decision making. And now you've got that town or that state that is that is now bereft of 
you know, again, sort of, you know, the, the flower of their youth that has impacts long after the war. Anyway, um, so moving on, uh, we talked, you talked a little bit about the, the speech of Putin to the, uh, the Russian industrial group. If you want to, um, expand on that a little bit on some of the things that were anything else that was discussed there. So certainly, you know, in terms of thinking about, you know, what's going to be the, the rest of the winter fighting season, you know, what does 2023 hold in store? There has been, uh, quite a lot of, and so getting to, to Putin and the minister of defense, Sergei Shoigu, in just a second, there has been many mourners in recent weeks of uh, another wave of mobilization. Uh, the first one got, you know, three to 350,000 uh, men, and it appears the, the drumbeat of another one is coming. So another uh, 300, 350,000 men uh, is part of like the Russian strategy, if not to sort of gain more ground. Uh, it's not that they're doing any better fighting, but to signal to both the Ukrainians and to the larger, um, you know, alliance network supporting Ukraine that the Russians do have the manpower to effectively freeze the fighting where it is. So wouldn't it be better to go to the negotiating table now versus losing however many more on both sides? Um, we also had a, a, and so part of that, uh, so there was also a video that was released by the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, uh, Alexei Reznikov, in which he said, one, it's happening. Two, unlike, you know, uh, the first mobilization, which went after people in, you know, small, you know, smaller towns, uh, you know, more provincial setting, that the next one is coming to the uh, cities and that the, the border will be closed, uh, you know, soon enough. And obviously this is meant to make, you know, Russian men of a certain age quite nervous. And so part of the discussion about mobilization in the recent speeches and, you know, public commentary by Putin, Shoigu and others is that one, the difficulties that were faced in the first mobilization, uh, you know, Sergei Shoigu, um, who has never met a problem that he's not been able to solve just by mere suggestion of having solved it, um, is he said all the problems that were identified in the first mobilization were solved on the go, um, and that he's been very proud of the, the administrative abilities of the Russian state and of the military commissariat system. Um, one sort of little tidbit that was put into the speech is that the conscription age uh, in Russia is uh, going to be increased from the minimum, uh, the minimum age is from 18 to 21. And so if I could get the word salad out of the way, it means that in Russia, like when you turn 18, you're therefore liable to uh, be conscripted. Um, but if you pass that with, with, without being conscripted, you're basically home free after that year. What the change is coming that was uh, released in that speech is that up to 21, you can be conscripted for the first time. And that conscription for those in the first time uh, across uh, all of Russia, the maximum age is going to be 30 years old. So this means all basically Russian men from 18 to 30 are at some point going to be liable for military service under the new new course of the of the conflict that those who have the resources do leave. Um, and this is going to be only going to encourage them uh, to do more. There are these new patriotic youth organizations that Shoigu said 1.25 million uh, children and teenagers have already uh, signed up for. And I imagine that anyone in Russia who doesn't want, you know, their sons to, to get in this conflict are probably going to start thinking, you know, maybe it's best if, you know, our son doesn't even finish high school in Russia, 
but just get this person out of the out of the country. That seems to be something that we in terms of the structure of Russia over the, the, the next decade. And one of the interesting tidbits that I was picked up, you know, in preparation for this is that just in the first mobilization, first concern 1% of Russia's able-bodied formal workforce. One of the tidbits of one of the consequences of that is that there has been essentially an uptick in uh, inflation in Russia, because if you remove 1% of the entire workforce, you need to then, and uh, you need to then be able to offer uh, higher wages to those who, who don't get conscripted. Um, there have also been a change in tax rules for IT workers, um, basically making work from home uh, taxed at a much higher rate. And obviously this is not just like whatever sort of COVID situation, but they wanna make people who uh, are in Russia essentially go to a workplace so that they can be more accountable to the state compared to let's say someone who works for a Russian company, but is an IT worker and is actually in Armenia, Georgia, or points further afield. A lot more people are going to be leaving the country over the course of uh, 2023. And as the, the ruble has weakened because there's much less in the way of export earnings, there is also clearly across all of Russia, like their version, the consumer price index has shown tremendous price increases over basically all goods at this point. So at the same time that, you know, the, the leadership is saying everything is fine, a lot of economic data is saying that it, it's not. And even in um, pr uh, Putin's portion of the speech, um, he said that one, the first important thing that he said was there's no constraints in funding. That means obviously the, the you know, defense industry can do whatever it wants, but there's also probably going to be a lot more wastage of money uh, because there's no next year for Putin or thinking about five years or 10 years from now. All the resources of Russia are going to be put into this conflict and doing as well as possible as soon as possible. Um, that's just a recipe for inefficiency, graft, corruption, uh, etc. He also noted that um, the two most important things, and obviously a signal to those listening, is that drones and drones must improve basically like immediately, uh, so that basically Russian soldiers are able to get the information they need in order to do, um, uh, you know, to have targeting information as quickly as possible. So basically, that also shows uh, the ability to have, you know, the recon strike complex has not been as basically well performed or well implemented as perhaps many uh, had been fearing over the last couple of years. And he also noted that the basic, uh, the basic kit, uh, food, dry rations, um, protective equipment, uniform, boots, helmets, things of that nature uh, is in an insufficient state uh, relative for uh, main maintaining the special military operation for an indefinite period. He did give a shout out to the population of Russia for crowdfunding, uh, you know, those things that the, that the soldiers need, but it shows that there are lots of issues happening within the Russian, you know, defense industrial complex. They don't have the things, uh, they don't have microchips, so they can't make drones. So they need to get it from like Iran or North Korea or other places. Uh, and it's simply, even with whatever they've been able to buy over the past year, it hasn't been enough. They also show that those in like in the fighting don't have everything they need in order to fight. And that going back to how much does Putin care about the individual soldier? Obviously not very much. Uh, and we're now 10 months into a conflict in which all the things that the soldiers need 
to fight are still not getting to them. And that's really like when we think about the logistical and the production difficulties that Russia has been basically demonstrating over the past 10 months, it's not immediately obvious that this stuff is going to improve and for basically stuff to get to the front lines quicker so that people can survive and pass on the institutional knowledge of how to survive and how to fight, um, as you mentioned, like a little while ago. And so in that regard, what we've seen Russia do as basically uh, a way to mitigate this issue is just put as many people on the front line as possible and to use mass as the speed bump uh, for basically the uh, Ukrainian forces on the other side. That sort of hits on a, a couple of interesting points we've hit previously as well. You know, one is, you know, the, the U- Ukrainian government is obviously, they've gone the crowdsourcing approach as well, right? There's, a, I think it's Ukraine, or no, it's United 24, I think is sort of the official like federal Ukrainian approach, but there's also been a number of, you know, smaller um, Ukrainian nonprofits, non-government organizations, as well as international nonprofits, um, NGOs who have done various crowdfunding things for the Ukrainian military, Ukrainian populace. But, you know, the big difference is Ukraine did not expect this war, right? Whereas Russia planned for it. And the fact that they're now at this point with a pre-planned deliberate war that they undertook with months and months of preparation and stockpiling, that they are crowdsourcing basic stuff like uniforms, it sort of goes back to the overall level of dysfunction and corruption that you know permeates the Russian military structure, civil structure, and which, by the way, we mentioned before, like Putin has encouraged this, right? This is all downstream of the type of overarching autocracy special to him that he he's done. This, this is all part of the plan, essentially. But it's still striking that 10 months in, come winter, cold weather clothing. That actually, this is the second winter, right? Cold weather clothing and things like that, basic stuff, still a problem for the Russian military when they, they pre-planned, or at least he pre-planned this war for a long time. And then the, the drone thing as well, I, I only bring it up because our former Swedish visiting fellow, Henrik Paulson, he sent me a bunch of text this morning. One was about the Heimar strike, but another was a, admittedly, it was an undated video, but it was of a, a Ukrainian drone. You know, so one Russia is getting, is importing drones from other countries. Meanwhile, the video he sent me was of a 3D printed um, drone using commercially available parts and then armed with a RKG-3 EFP grenade as the warhead. And one of these was used to fly directly into a trench line to uh, to deliver its munition, while a second one was there acting as a spotter, basically watching this one go in. And when it, again, it's just a contrast of, you know, Russia is importing stuff while Ukraine is using, you know, again, 21st century technology added to manufacturing to combine existing munitions with innovative uses of added manufacturing to create new things for themselves um, to be used in new and interesting ways. But the other thing from the video, and this goes back to like the learning organization, I mentioned this to Henrik, which is, again, admittedly, the video is undated, but sort of the spotter drone watching the munition fly in, the trench line itself is, it is completely unconcealed and uncamouflaged from an aerial perspective. Um, It is this giant scar of dirt in the ground with upturned earth basically sort of thrown out on either side. And the point is, you can tell it's a trench. You can tell it's a trench from far, far away. And it's just striking, again, that at this point in the conflict where Ukrainian precision fires, along with UAS-enabled precision fires and, you know, sort of kamikaze mini mini munitions, we are almost a year into this, and there are still places on the battlefield where the Russian forces are not taking 
basic cover and concealment precautions from the air. Because from 100 feet or 200 feet, you can tell where recently upturned earth is. Um, it's very obvious on a, on a sensor. And the fact that they are still not taking any measure to sort of camouflage their trenches from above is, again, it's indicative that where learning may be occurring in some places, but it is not translating uniformly across the force. It makes every, every attempt for that Russian soldier to survive on the battlefield harder because it's, it's, that, it's the same thing as like you don't put ammunition next to the barracks. You should cover and conceal a trench that you recently dug because from more than five feet away and especially from above, it is blindingly obvious that that is a man-made fortification there. And if it's a man-made fortification, there might be something there worth targeting. We're a year into this almost, and those lessons are still not percolating across the force. Again, to tie it back to the whole, this is the house that Putin built kind of thing. He doesn't want an adaptive and innovative force because that kind of force can ask questions. You know, questions about the whole system that put them there in the first place. You know, so I guess it's better to sacrifice a few dozen or hundred Russian soldiers in unprotected, uncamouflaged trenches than make any meaningful changes that would increase their survivability, but then maybe also raise some questions about why they're there in the first place. Yeah, and just to, you know, one little tidbits that came up, you know, in the uh, the end of the year news dump, um, you know, Putin also canceled his annual call-in show, uh, is not going to have his constitutionally mandated address to the Federal Assembly, uh, is not going to have, uh, you know, really any interactions with uh, unscreened people, is there was a decree that uh, the requirement that bureaucrats in Russia clear their and you know, it's, it's worth dwelling on for a moment because this is a very clear trade. And obviously, like, also sort of evidence of, like, the weakness of Putin within the political system is that if he's telling people, you don't, as long as I'm in charge, you don't need to declare your income, that's effectively a trade. I will permit graft, corruption, you know, theft of state resources, even during the time of conflict. I just need you not to think any big thoughts thereafter. That'll obviously be a trade that many will take because they'll take this opportunity at the time that, you know, the Russian military economy, the Russian military, like manufacturing base needs to, in fact, you know, get better, more efficient, more innovative. It'll go in the opposite direction because why wouldn't you, Steve? Because ostensibly, if you know that Putin is allowing you to take whatever it is that you can get right now, he's not thinking about next year or two years from now. He's thinking about today. So as long as you can just keep things going where you're stealing everything from, you know, out the back of the truck, then you're going to take that. And what this will do over the, obviously the next months, years, et cetera, is that it will hollow out Russian governance at even further. And eventually there's going to be just like much less stuff to take or to steal. And at that point, things that we've seen in times of turbulence in Russia before, which is if I'm stealing something and the other person's stealing something, I'm going to be much more concerned about basically my rival rather than thinking about the public interest, rather than thinking about Putin. I'm either going to think I better, I'd like to take him out because I want his stuff, or I assume that he wants to do the same to me. So therefore I'm going to strike first. So he doesn't have a chance to clean me out um, before. And the combination is we're going to see much more violence and basically like consolidation of power at these lower levels than there were before, because people are going to take this opportunity to take as much as possible. And once they start taking, no one wants to be the last one left not to take. 
And that, in effect, is going to be, you know, something that we'll see over the course of this year, far more violence, basically within the power structures, within the security services of people not wanting to be left out when the spoils are being divided. And once basically the Mueller, it's going to be very difficult for Putin to then motivate that same to do his bidding. And in times before we've seen what do leaders do in this situation, they have to use much more coercion, coercion against the bureaucrats, coercion against the public. How long does that last? We could go on with that the consequence of not being a learning organization. The consequence of not getting better is that you need to find different ways to motivate people. And if you motivate them through permitting corruption or you motivate them through fear of coercion, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. It only goes for a little bit amount of time where you need to essentially keep going at it, allow them to steal more, you know, crack heads even further, and eventually it all runs out. And Putin is no different from any other autocratic leader. He's pretty secure now, but once once the power starts to waver, it'll crack very quickly. Yeah, and again, as you, as you were sort of talking through that, the whole learning or lack of learning was running through my head again. And I think it's you know, his decision to do this, it kind of, and well, maybe it, it answers a question he's not asking himself, but maybe that others are asking outside of Russia, which is what is their capacity to learn and adapt their system to win what they are characterizing as an existential struggle. And his decision to, to do this is essentially, it sort of reads as a doubling down on the same corrupt sort of closed loop system that he has spent his entire career building. So if, you know, if the question is, are they able to make like large, significant cultural changes and adaptations to win this existential crisis, that would seem to indicate he's not ready to do that yet, it, it, which raises the second question further down the road is, is he willing to do that ever? Or is he even capable of conceiving that? Or is his lack of willingness to adapt to uh, adapt his culture that he's built that's enabled him to stay in power to the crisis? Uh, if he's not able to do that, then it, then it's really just a matter of time, you know, before he runs out of weeks that he can punt the can down the road uh, before the whole thing sort of comes collapsing in, you know. But unfortunately, the problem is that there can still be a lot of uh, destruction and chaos and very bad things happening before that point comes. So anyway, but no, it's uh, it's interesting that he does seem to be sort of doubling down on the the system that he built because he's not willing to lose that system. That seems to be the priority. All right. Well, I think we've been going, uh, even despite our technical difficulties, for about an hour now. So um, any final thoughts to uh, put out before we wrap up? We said this when, when we started the series. Hopefully, we'll be done soon. Although I really enjoy your company, uh, I hope we're not doing this next year. I think it's fair to say that we will be doing episodes on the one-year anniversary of the invasion, unfortunately. But, you know, fingers crossed that, as we've said in, in past episodes, as well as not on camera, Things can change very quickly on the battlefield and looking at today to the one year anniversary of the war, you know, in just under two months from now, you know, as the weather changes and gets colder, that creates potentially new, you know, new dynamics on the battlefield. A lot can happen in two months. So probably still a fair guess we'll be here in February, late February, but it uh, it would be nice if we were not here this time next year. Anyway, yes, it is. It is always good to see you, Yuval. So again, first episode here in the new year. Yeah, first episode in the new year. I guess that's all we can say about that. We'll continue to look at this as the weeks and months go by and just hoping that it's sooner rather than later that we can end this. Right on. Be well. You as well. Take care. Bye. Bye.